Dispatch Boys. Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, the show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. The police radio code 999 means officer down. Our guest, retired New York City cop John Millay, was working lower Manhattan on 9-11. He's going to talk about that day, talk about the war on cops, talk about police suicide on this very special 999 edition of the Badge Boys. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. If you like the Badge Boys, you'll love their books. Starting with Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story, which Arizona Diamondbacks president Derek Hall proclaimed, Jason is an inspiration and his story must be read and shared. The professionally written novel is a powerful biography chronicling Jason's gut-wrenching battle to health after being trapped in a fireball that consumed his police car and his high-stakes legal showdown against the Ford Motor Company for their explodingly lethal Crown Victoria police cruisers. Then there's Darren's award-winning Twisted But True book trilogy with close to 100 compelling and funny true crime stories that American detectives with Lieutenant Joe Kenda producer called the perfect blend of humor, heroism, and honor. And retired Colonel Dave Grossman declared, Darren's Twisted But True books are hilarious, deep, and powerful. Each book in the series received the Pinnacle Award for the best true crime book, and a story from book two was featured on an ID Channel television show. And Robin's most recent book, Soul Stirrings, reviewed as an often humorous and spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage to the afterlife. Darren called it a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story. It's a story like no other. And Robin's first book, Victim No More, where she shares her harrowing experiences with rape and domestic violence as Robin takes the reader on a very personal journey through the morass of abuse and loss, and ultimately, survival. These Badge Boy books should be on everybody's top 10 reading list. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. He survived 9-11. We see it on TV. We hear about it. We do the anniversaries. He lived it. Literally blocks away from the tower watching this horrific day unfold. I'm so excited to talk to this, John. Uh, gosh, I'm going to just uh, talk a little bit about your introduction here. Uh, you worked customs. You then became a, a New York City cop in 1998. You're the founder of Mission First Partners. You're still helping out the community of law enforcement and those suffering from PTS. Uh, so first of all, welcome to Badge Boys, John. Welcome to Badge Boys, my friend. Thank you, Darren. It's great to be here today. You know, I do want to get right into it, uh, but the question that uh, Jason always asks our guests or law enforcement he always has one question. Yeah, why did you put your name on the application? You, you think back over your life and you think about those days that could change your entire life for better or for worse. It could happen either way. And the day I went in and I took that exam was one of those days in my life. You know, I, um, I really thought this was... This was where my life was going. This was 
what I wanted to do with my life. And I know a little bit about your story. Uh, you were working kind of narcotics. Uh, you got this great gig, kind of get out of a dangerous field where you're working at the museum. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then that's when, well, all hell broke loose. Yep, yep. Uh, I had uh, I had been working. I I was originally did my patrol time in the three two precinct in Central Harlem, and then I was working in a narcotics unit there. And a sergeant that I used to work with had gotten a job down at the police museum and she recommended me to come down there. So uh, they offered me the position and I took it. And uh, six months later, uh, 9-11 happened. So uh, as I say in the blog, it's kind of ironic sometimes to think when I think back that I was in many ways safer working narcotics in central Harlem than I was working right down by Wall Street in lower Manhattan. And in your blog, you wrote about it, and it reads like an article. It's, it's really beautiful. You said, I ran to the window. There I saw something I will never forget. Hundreds of people running down Broadway, like something out of a 50s horror movie. They suddenly, the sky went black as night and stayed that way. After about 15 to 20 minutes, the dust finally settled. Take us to, after the kind of dust settled, what happened? It was one of those very surreal scenes uh you know you're looking at history but you're not really grasping everything that's going on around you because you're right in the middle of it uh once the dust finally settled uh the sergeant and i walked outside and it was like nothing i ever thought i'd encounter in lower manhattan uh you know you had dust you had ash falling like snow uh, people were wandering around. At this time, people had lost their bearings, so people were literally wandering around like zombies. They were dazed. Um, you know, we went outside. It, the, the dust, it burned your eyes, it burned your nose, it burned your throat. Um, it's, again, it's like I said, it's, it's surreal thinking back to that time that in retrospect, you know you were looking at history, but at the time, you it's just something that's happening all around you. And you also wrote there were Humvees driving down the streets with soldiers and Marines on them. Helicopters flew overhead through the still hazy air. This didn't feel like America. It felt like something on Apocalypse Now. Again, in hindsight, we knew what happened. As you're living it, I can't imagine what you were thinking was occurring. What were your thoughts? Well, you know, when I when I look back at it, you know, the one thing that always strikes me, even though I was in the middle of all of it happening, and I'm not trying to say this with any bravado or anything like that, but I never felt scared. And I think most of the people that I were with never really felt fear. It was such, there was such intensity to the experience. I don't think the fear of what was going on was even registering with any of us. Uh, just sort of amazement at what we were looking at unfold in front of us. I mean, at the time, we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know if this was the end of Manhattan as we know it. You know, when I think about when we go in cop mode, I always call it going in cop mode. And when I was in my shooting, everything went by the numbers. It, it, you know, your training kicks in and all those things just apply. And you, you, like you said, you, you're not scared. It's when the dust settles and all of a sudden you have a, a chance to reflect upon it. I would love for you to talk a little bit about when you made it to your car and there was that note and talk about that note. But then if you would talk about when you went home and you saw your wife. Yeah. Um, 
after two days, I finally got a chance to go home for a couple of hours. And uh, I, my wife and I had moved into our first new house on the 2nd of September. And it was in upstate New York, so I had been taking the train into Manhattan. So uh, two days later, I took the train back up. And when I got off at the train station, I walked to my car and there was a note underneath my windshield wiper. And I, I couldn't imagine why somebody would be leaving me a note at a time like this. So um, kind of annoyed, I picked it up and I grabbed it because I thought somebody was trying to tell me something. And I looked down at it and there were three lines written on it. It said, I hope you made it out. God bless you. Don't give up. And um, for that was the first time I broke down for a couple of minutes. I had to go kind of sit down on the curb before I could compose myself and drive home. And uh, I, I would love to know what happened to that note. Because after that, everything gets kind of fuzzy. Uh, I drove home, and from what my wife told me, uh, in the driveway, I took off all my clothes. I walked into the house, and I just fell into her arms. And all I said was, they're dead. They're all dead. And um, again, you know, when I look back at that time, some memories are so clear they could have happened yesterday. And other times, the days just sort of run together. But uh, it wasn't until later on when we sat down and we talked that uh, until that moment, my wife didn't know if I was alive or not. Um, because I, when everything happened, when we lost the cell towers in the Bronx, I got a message up to her by landline from a friend in the Bronx that I was okay. And But she, she didn't believe it until she actually saw me. And I, I even asked her, I said, you know, you know, I told you I was okay. What made you think that something might have gone wrong? And she looked at me and she said, I know you. She said, even if it wasn't safe, you would have gone in. She said, that's just how you are. And um, there, there was a time where I, I carried around a lot of guilt about that because I said, you know, what right did I have to do that to her? So, you know, there, there were all these emotions, not just about, what it did to me, what it did to my career, but what it did to my family, what it did to the NYPD. Uh, there was such a sweep to this event. If you weren't actually on the ground with it, it's really hard to understand it. Um, the closest thing I can compare it to is in November, MFP was a vendor at the National Conference on Law Enforcement, Wellness and Trauma, and it was held in Oklahoma City. And uh, one of the events was a pre-event at the Oklahoma City Memorial, which I had never been to before. Uh, and when I went there, I, I have to tell you, it's an absolutely stunning memorial. If you ever have the chance to see it, it's something not to be missed. But I actually remarked to some of the people that work there. When I try to tell people about 9-11, I, tr I try to tell them you can't really comprehend the enormity of what it was without actually being there and seeing it. And the Oklahoma City Memorial is probably the closest thing I've seen that compares to that. You know, when I think about, I, I can't, I can't wrap my head on what you endured and what the survivor's guilt, because so many officers, you know, lives were lost that day. Um, but you wrote something about the job that you were handed. And in fact, and on Bad Boys, we had a guest that worked the morgue. Um, right. um, yeah, uh, that was... My God, I can't even imagine that. But then when I read what your job was and you wrote about the, the, the difficulty of 
people coming to your station. I want, if you can, uh, talk a little bit about that, that duty where they would come, find out if th- their loved ones were there, and the, the, the horror telling them, no, they're not on the list of survivors. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that, that was part of our job initially uh, right afterwards. Um, I was part of the Deputy Commissioner of Community Affairs, so we were the main point of contact with the public. And when we started working at the Family Center, for the first four or five days after uh, 9-11, there were a lot of unidentified people in the hospitals. And we were slowly identifying them, either through fingerprints or other means. And uh, three times a day, we would get an updated list of the uh, names of people in the hospitals. So we had these huge queues of uh, people coming in to see us, wanting to give us the names of their loved ones and see if they had appeared on the list. And there is nothing I don't think I've ever experienced in my life, like the looks on people's faces as we told them, no, I'm sorry, they're not on the list. And it's, 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 like, I, it's like I say in my blog, as a cop, you can understand taking away people's freedom. You can even understand taking somebody's life. But there's nothing like the feeling of taking away somebody's hope. There's nothing you can do that's ever going to prepare you for doing something like that. And at the same time, I have I have some pictures on there of it. Uh, at the same time, people were making up missing persons posters of their loved ones, and they were posting them all over. And this wall that they were posting them on happened to be right across from where our station was, where we were maintaining these lists. And I remember looking at the posters over the course of a day and looking at all the pictures and the things that struck me about them was they were pictures of vacations, of birthdays, of all these events that were probably taken on the happiest days in these people's lives that now all of a sudden now they were being used to identify them. And one thing I will say that's lingered with me after all this time after 20 years, I am still haunted by those faces looking back at me from those posters. Yeah, that was the part of, and I'm going to refer to it as an article, that was a part of the article that literally brought me to tears when I was reading that because, you know, we've done notification details. Uh, you've done them, Jason, in homicide. Uh, there's nothing more difficult than, than that, and you did it. That was your gig, notifying people that, no, they're not on the list. I can't, even, I can't even wrap my head around that type of detail. No, and he put it so poetically, you know, to take away somebody's hope. You know, hope truly is everything, but also the, it's just not normal for us to hold the kind of power that we're going to change somebody's life forever. And when that, you know, task is put on us, whether it be a single notification, like when I was in homicide, you know, notifying somebody that their loved one committed suicide or was murdered, that was that was heavy. So oh. I, I, I'm trying, I mean, and, and John, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm just, having been where I was, I was in the hospital at the time when 9-11 happened, and obviously uh, my love for firefighters, having been involved in a fire and severely burned, 9-11 had an impact on me, but you, you say it perfectly, I, I wasn't, one of the boots on the ground. I didn't lose friends. I didn't have to have the overwhelming guilt of being a survivor, but also what you, 
was going on with your family. And I just, I can't tell you what a beautiful speaker you are. You're so eloquent in telling this story after 20 years. And uh, it's very moving. I mean, I'm, I'm just sitting here almost in silence. I'm so glad I'm letting Darren <laughs> handle the interview part because I'm just sitting here mesmerized by this story. And I'm feeling hu- hundreds of emotions that uh, it's just it's and I'm, incredible. And I'm so glad you said that because it brings up another point that John, when I started this, you know, contacting John as a, as a guest on Badge Boys, can you even speak to this? There's a lot of people that can't speak to their pain. And John, you shared with me, you know, five years ago, you could not have done this. Um, can you talk a little bit about that PTS and how your career was shortened based on this horrific event, much like my beautiful partner Jason's was and his car explosion? Can you talk about that? Well, um, after, uh, the, after the time at the family center, when it got moved to Pier 94, uh, we got a new mission. And that mission was that the families wanted to view the recovery effort downtown. Uh, but it was closed off to the public, and we were trying to protect them from the media. So uh, the job fell to my team. And my lieutenant, who had a PhD in psychology, she crafted a, a procedure by which three times a day, we would take uh, we would take a group of family members down and take them down into the pit. And uh, it was very well organized. We used a lot of elements of support that I learned later on were important uh, psychologically. We used clergy members. We used comfort dogs. Uh, we used a whole sweep of things. But it was myself and my group that was the main point of contact for the families. And again, much like when we were operating like the, uh, the lists, you're, you're doing a job, but there's also a feeling of helplessness because, um, as, as I said, we, we could offer them whatever support we could. We could look at their pictures. We could listen to their stories. We could answer their questions. Uh, but mostly all we could do is sit there and uh, put our arm around them while they cried and um, hope they didn't see us crying ourselves. Wow. Wow. Um, when you talk about PTS, well, let me say this at that time with New York, uh, and the, really the world came together and police were looked at as these heroes that ran running into the building. Fire department was looked at these heroes running into the towers, you know, literally running to their death, sadly. And the, the medical community and, and everyone, you know, we came together. There's a beautiful time in that tragedy and you lived through that, and then you also lived through a time where police were villainized in the 2020 um, riots, the protests. And I can't even imagine a more opposite environment that you've seen in New York. And I don't want to stay stuck in the 2020 horrors um, because it's it's a bad time. But I'm hoping that good times are coming forward for law enforcement. And the reason I say is because you also lost two um, cops in Harlem in a beat that you know very well. And I couldn't help but notice the community come together uh, to honor these, these fallen heroes. Um, can you talk about that as it relates to the funerals and, and the people coming together and 
supporting law enforcement because in 2020 we didn't see that we didn't see these images but we're seeing that with this funeral it's just so i don't know it just it, it just sings to my my heart it really does my soul um can you talk about that that incident the location because if i'm understanding correctly you worked that beat yes unfortunately uh the uh, the, the murders of Pio rivera and Pio mora not only happened in my old command it happened in the sector that i used to work and um you know it's funny that i, I realized when i when i first heard the notifications it kind of tells me how much this job really gets under your skin because um i haven't worked there in over 20 years and I'll tell you very freely, I probably can't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, but I can hear the address 119 West 135th Street. Immediately it comes to mind that Sector Charlie. So that is really how this kind of job kind of gets under your skin. And um, in that time after 9-11 that you're talking about, when we did get so much support, it was this even in the midst of all this horror, it was this very brief, very beautiful time where we saw Americans come together the way they should always be coming together. And unfortunately, the pendulum does swing back and forth. But, you know, I tried to remind people in the middle of 2020 when uh, all, this, all these anti-police demonstrations were going on, you know, for all the invective, for all the vitriol that gets hurled at law enforcement officers today, try to remember 9-11. Try to think back to that day when those cops felt like they were the most important people in the world to everybody. Yeah, no, that's so well said. It really is. Um, you did something uh, post-career where you're helping people because PTS, we're seeing police suicides. Um, you created an organization to help our first responders can you talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, actually, the journey from 9-11 is kind of what brought me to here. Uh, as you noted before, my career ended early because of uh, PTSD. I was forced to retire from the NYPD. And uh, for a lot of years, I was very sort of aimless. I had my little retirement routine that I settled into. Uh, very quiet, very low stress. And then in 2017, a uh, dear friend reached out to me, uh, my, uh, my friend Eric Goldnick. He's the CEO of what is now known as Forge VFR, but at that time it was only known as Veteran and First Responder Healthcare. And he reached out to me because they were starting this company that specialized in mental health and substance abuse treatment, specifically for veterans and first responders. And Eric was retired Navy, so he had a lot of people to help on the military side, but he had nobody on the first responder side. So he asked me if, uh, if I could work with him on that, and I did. And uh, fortunately, I was able to be very instrumental in creating their first responder program. I wrote all of their training materials. Uh, I established their relationship with the New Hampshire law enforcement community. And uh, now today, uh, VF, uh, Forge VFR is a very well-known, very well-respected uh, part of the first responder community. And can and you also talk about that Twilight video uh, and how that helps in terms of 
recognizing police suicides because I know your organization also put that out with uh, the Irish Angels. Uh, Merrick, um, Amanda Coleman, who we've had on the show uh, in the minute that we have left, can you kind of talk about that Twilight video? Yep. Twilight actually began in 2019. And uh, the genesis of it was, unfortunately, that September, we had a suicide of a police captain in Nashua, New Hampshire. His name was Captain John Leda. And both uh, the department and his family were so open about it being a suicide because they wanted to raise awareness to this issue. And at his memorial service, uh, we had such a great turnout, such a great show of support. We were trying uh, to think of something we could do to keep this, uh, to keep the momentum on this and keep it moving forward. Uh, so my idea was Twilight. And Twilight started with uh, one radio transmission in Franklin, New Hampshire, that covered uh, three, uh, three separate departments. And in only two years, it's grown to an hour and a half event. So Twilight is our memorial of law enforcement lives lost to PTSD and suicide. Uh, we hold it every year on the day of the winter solstice because we chose the shortest day of the year to remember all the lives that were too short because of these conditions. We ask people to record videos and uh, we want everybody's voice to be heard so we don't place any time limits on videos and we don't edit them in any way. Uh, we compile videos and we compile the videos and we time them to end at the moment of sundown, twilight, at which time we ask all of our participating law enforcement agencies to call for one minute of radio silence to remember everyone that we lost to PTSD and suicide. I love it. Uh, I love what you've done with that. I love what you've done with your career. You took a tragedy and now you're helping others based on your own pain. Um, I can't even imagine what you've gone through. I really can't. But I cannot thank you enough for being on Badge Boys and sharing your story with everyone out there. Thank you, Darren. It was great to be here. Thank you, sir. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at Arizona Fallen Heroes Memorial Riders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Darren, that was truly just, I can never get enough of listening or watching about 9 11. You know what? It makes me think recently we lost the final survivor of Pearl Harbor. And, you know, we didn't have the technology back then. The, you know, there's some, there's some incredible footage, but 9-11 in today, today's world of, of the lot of things were caught on video. Yeah. And uh, these stories need to be continually <sighs> shared because there will come a time in 50, 60, 80 years where there are no longer any survivors of that day that can tell you 
with their voice, their perspective. And but John was, I mean, he's some kind of special. Though yes. he's he's a great speaker, and he's gone through a lot to get to where he's at today. But uh, I just I hate to use the word enjoyed that, but I I did like I'm just compelling. I'm inspired. I'm moved. I'm I'm heartbroken all over oh, again. I it's cried just, when uh, I read this story. Just amazing. So uh, with that, we are going to move into one of my favorite segments, uh, the butt quotes, where we really find out <laughs> that sincerity and authenticity mean nothing in the world of political expediency. Oh, it's true. Butt quotes. We don't care if you're on the left or on the right, or if you're in the corner of some red and blue fight. We don't care if you're a card-carrying member of the Green Tea Party. Sorry. You can't say anti-police rhetoric one day and then a butt quote the next, as that would make you a two-faced rat. It really does. And here are some who did just that. We are going to go into our butt quotes. Uh, yeah, this is based on the... The funeral of, um, of Officer Rivera. His was the, the last one that we just we saw. Yeah. Um, this is from New York Attorney General Letitia James said, quote, All of New York State is mourning tonight. We pray for the safety of our police and our communities, which is a beautiful, beautiful statement. But just last April 16th, she said, we need to talk about the history of policing, which is embedded in racism, going back to the slave trade, the slave code, black code, etc. Yeah, that's a that's a butt quote. No doubt about it. Uh, but quote number two, uh, again, after the funeral, Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg said, quote, violence against police officers will never be tolerated. And my office will be vigorously prosecute cases of violence against the police. You would hope they, he meant that. Except that a month earlier, the same D.A. Bragg defended his policy to not prosecute the crimes of resisting arrest by saying, we will not be seeking to destroy criminal lives through unnecessary incarceration. Oh, yeah, that's a butt Sorry quote. to laugh. That's, that's it is laughable. It, it's it should be real. that a human being can speak yes. those words. Both sides of the butt. No doubt about it. Perfect <laughs> butt quote. Uh, I, I, have to, I have to tell you, Darren. Yes, I please. Used, I used to joke that I lived in, uh, that I worked in a city where armed robbery was pretty much a misdemeanor, but now it's actually true. Now it actually is a misdemeanor. These were jokes yeah. that are now becoming real with the politicians of uh, New York. Again, back to the after the funeral, uh, New York governor, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing her, her name, Hochul, uh, quote, we need alignment with our men and women in uniform because they're putting their lives on the line to keep us safe. But again, just a month earlier, defending her bail reform initiatives, the same governor said, far too long we had a criminal injustice system. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a butt quote. Uh, butt quote number four. On the, again, on the night of the actual shooting, uh, council member Johanna Hanif retweeted a statement, quote, heartbroken by the shooting in Harlem and the violent start of the year. But on January 21st of 2020, she said, more police won't keep us safe. Uh, that's a butt quote. Uh, next butt quote, number five. On the night of the, the shooting again, Comptroller Brad Lander, I have no idea what a Comptroller is, maybe uh, John can tell us. He said, quote, a 22-year-old New York PD officer has died, and, and another one is fighting for his life. Of course, later, sadly, he died too. Continue continue the quote our hearts are with their loved ones and colleagues but on june 9th of 2020 he said quote it is time to defund the police and reimagine our public safety infrastructure 
Well, and Jason, take that take that from where it comes because the controller in New York City is actually in charge of New York City's finances. So, you know, he's speaking from a position of actually being able to do that. Yeah, that makes it a little more scary. When Darren said, I don't know what a controller is, I was thinking in my head, I don't want to know, I don't care, because I know it's still uh, a political place, but that, yeah, that makes it a little more scarier that uh, they, yeah, they can control that. The last, don't want to see how the sausage is made. The last butt quote. On the night of the shooting, council member Lincoln Ressler retweeted, quote, tonight we mourn the loss of a hero, a son, a husband, and a friend. But on June 30th, 2020, he also said to pay for a new police class in this budget is a slap in the face to the movement demanding transformation. He supported defunding the police. Uh, Unbelievable. Well, while that is uh, enough to make you pretty angry, uh, I think this will lift your spirits. This week's heroic headline comes out of Los Angeles, where a police sergeant named Bumjin Kim was at the right place at the right time when a frantic father of a three-year-old screamed for help and handed his choking daughter's limp body to the veteran officer. The initial sight of her slumped over in her dad's arms and the color of the baby really was the first impression that made me believe she was not breathing. She had something in her mouth, so I tried to sweep her mouth two or three times. The last time, I was able to get something out. In his body cam video, this is where body cam videos, I, I love them because it 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 puts you there. Yeah. Like you can see it. The girl's dad can be heard screaming, officer, please. Can you imagine that? No. Over and over as he fell to the ground on his knees in tears, solely relying on this officer to save his daughter's his life. whole world. That... That is why these butt quotes infuriate me because this is what police work is all about. Kim, who happened to be patrolling the Echo Park area, jumped into action. It took only seconds for him to call dispatch, get fire rolling. At the same time, he turned the baby over. He swiftly patted her on the back, and all of a sudden, she regained consciousness and began crying. And then on the body cam, you hear her mom saying, baby, it's okay. I love you. Took her to the hospital. She is in stable condition. And mm-hmm. Officer Kim is certainly, he has a three-year-old son of his own that he admitted. I wasn't even thinking about that at the moment. All I was thinking about was how do I get this child to start breathing again? And that is just one example of thousands and thousands of calls across this country every day of what police are doing. And so, Officer Kim, God bless you. Thank you for just being a credit to the badge, a credit to the service, and for just doing the right thing at the right time. It's it's not not difficult at all. I love that segment, um, the heroic headlines, because it really brings the heart of law enforcement. And I love how you do it because you're absolutely my hero. Uh, and I have the, I guess, the distasteful honor of bringing us to the bowels. <laughs> and of you do humanity. a very good job of it. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so now we go into loony laws around the world. Some of these laws may seem absolutely ridiculous, while others may be based on cultural differences. But they are all hard to believe. And since they are all true, it's best that you know the loony laws around the world you travel to some far off distant land and discover you violated the law by dancing in the dark or being fat in Japan. It's true. <laughs> it is illegal to be overweight in Japan. 
Um, other than their beloved sumo wrestlers, in an effort to prevent obesity in citizens, Japan enacted the Metabo Law. I'm probably not pronouncing that right because I'm not Japanese. Uh, the, this law mandates that all Japanese citizens between the ages of 40 and 74 submit to an annual weight measurement performed by their doctor. Uh, fines will be incurred if men have a waist over 33.5 inches. Right? I, 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 I'm three inches okay. over. Don't go to Japan. Uh, women bellies exceed over 35.4. They get like an extra two inches. What? I, I don't know why. I don't know if that's because of, you know, maybe. Well, to be fair, they have babies and, oh, okay. and okay. mother. There's okay. nothing more beautiful okay. than motherhood. So, uh, I'll get, but I'm not liking the fact that I'm in pretty darn good shape and my waist <laughs> size is 36, 37. I'm not going to get a fine for. Uh, this is concerning. I to you. pay my fine at the gym. Yeah, this is concerning. Uh, yeah, my to membership you. is my fine. But this is not concerning to me. You know why? Because I'm big in Japan. Oh my I'm god! Always oh, no. short, I'm always the shortest guy here. I'm big in Japan, buddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it's illegal to dance in the dark after midnight in Japan. <laughs> I, how can that be real? <laughs> Dancing after midnight was banned for generations, as it was thought to be too sinful. Ooh, it sounds like uh, Footloose. Uh, wow. It was enacted in 1948 while U.S. soldiers occupied Japan. I guess they like to dance. Uh, the ban was placed to stop liberal Americans from corrupting the good citizens of Japan. Uh, finally, lifting the ban in 2015, you can dance after midnight now, as long as it's not in the dark. Uh, revelers wanting to get the groove on after uh, you know the clock strikes 12 need to do so with a, a well-lit environment. Uh, I guess that would go for Stephen, um, or excuse me, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, you could this wasn't he the one that dances in the dark yes yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. uh so that is the loony laws and now for uh truly truly my best part of the show it is the closing segment your inspirational message yeah and you know every week darren i just try to do something that is currently inspiring and it's selfishly it's for me i mean it's what inspired me this week and uh it it definitely coincides with having John on the show out of respect for the incredible men and women in New York and what they've gone through. But if you actually watched the funeral of Jason Rivera and listened to his wife and the emotion, amazing. You, I, I've given a few eulogies. I've been very blessed to not have done it at the young age that she had to in the realm. I mean, this is her husband yeah. that she had just lost you know, basically a week before to a very violent act. And a lot of times you you will not see spouses get up at police funerals because it's just too damn hard. I couldn't and, speak. No, and I could not speak. She no. got out there and she spoke through her tears. She was so incredibly strong. And, uh, you know, this he, he was shot and killed on Friday, January 28th. Uh, Jason Rivera, yeah, I'm sorry, he was laid to rest on January 28th and Rivera's widow uh, completely distraught over the murder of her husband took the occasion of his funeral to totally eviscerate the system basically and their new DA. And she said, quote, the system continues to fail us. We are not safe anymore. Not even the members of the service. She said this during the funeral mass, which was held at the incredible St. Patrick's Cathedral. And if you've ever been there, you will be incredibly moved. Quote, I know you were tired of these laws, especially the ones for the new DA. I hope he's watching you speak through me right now. And she was speaking on behalf of Jason and the DA was there and she got a thunderous applause. 
in this church, which usually thunderous applauses do not break out in the middle of a funeral right, mass. Right. Standing ovation, people sitting in the pews. I'm sure that all of our blue family is tired too, but I promise, we promise that your death won't be in vain. You know what? We should all heed those words. And Jason Rivera, along with all the other officers, none of their deaths should be in vain. And we all need to do what his widow did and stand up and simply say what is right because it matters. Those who have gone before us and those who will go after us, it matters. Thank you all very much. God bless. Be safe. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.